Let us pray. Lord, if ever we needed open hearts, we need them now. If ever we needed the eternal words, we need them now. So I'm asking, Lord, as we're coming to the end of this week of being loved and mattering and belonging, that you'd reassure us that this is fact, preordained before the fall of the world and seeking to be sealed and sanctified and completely experienced in the end of the age. And now, Lord, prepare us for these words. Forgive our sins and hear us. Dwell among us and teach us. Touch us and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday was a big day at the Kelly home. It was the birthday of my oldest son. So we arranged for my daughter to be here this weekend. And we had five of the six immediate Ron and Colleen Kelly members of the family there, along with my mother and father-in-law, a dear aunt, and we sat down to eat lunch because that was the only meal this was going to work with. And he said, what time was I born? And I beat his mother to the answer. Ten oh nine. Firstborn child. Last major step out of boyhood into manhood. I'd been married for five years. The hardest thing for a boy to do is become a man. But as I sat in Memorial Hospital in South Bend, the last bridge was crossed. I listened this week to amazing testimonies and powerful messages that reminded me that the most elemental things of life are God's major teaching instruments. When Andrea Deckert sat in a chair right here and was being interviewed by Wayne Blakely, I was praying for the right answers. I need not have been too terribly worried. For God, when he starts to lose analogies that seem to be making sense, grabs onto the ones that are the easiest to understand. And a woman might forget her nursing child, but God is not going to forget us. It is marriage and parenting and this whole family scene that defines God's experience in relationship to his own children and the bond he desires to have with them individually. As I was thinking about those questions about when your child comes out and some of the advice that's being given, I'm thinking particularly of the line, 
not to look disappointed. I couldn't fathom for a moment how anybody who had taken a child from the cradle to adulthood and poured themselves into that little being could be so disingenuous as to somehow cover up the grief associated with that moment. I'm so thankful for, for the ability to love in spite of heaviness of heart and to keep learning in spite of ignorance about some things. But I'm here to tell you today that God knows how and he's well able to teach his people how to love the sinner and hate the sin. It's called Parenting 101. If you've never signed up, then take a cue from someone who has. Love someone else's child as close as you can to parenting. And you'll figure out that this is really a pretty simple thing and it's woven deeply into the fabric of every parent's heart. I'm holding in my hands a book that is very, very well intended. It's been talked about several times this week. It's called Guiding Families. I would never for a minute want to diminish the well-intendedness of the primary author who is not an Adventist and the contributing authors to try to make it Adventist. But it is not. And I didn't hear every word of every meeting that was shared. But the elemental problem with the book is that it is based on a cultural lie. And it is the lie that from the very first chapters of the Bible down to the very end is the whole point of the gospel. And that is the idea that somebody is beyond the reach of a transformed life and a God-identified identity. I'm going to read a little sentence out of the front part of the book. Again, I want to do nothing to impugn the intent of the authors. But intent does not liberate one from being misguided. This booklet... This is the first paragraph of the booklet. There's a blank page, and I'm reading from this line right here that I've highlighted in pink. This booklet is not designed to address the finer points of theology, biological, social, or legal issues. I'm not going to read any more.
But in this age of empirical science and statistical analysis, in this age of collecting and managing and deriving meaning from data, you need to understand something. The God of this age has become the measurable, the false science from which we subjugate the inspiration of God's ancient eternal words, the designer's words, to second-class practicality and importance. There is no finer point about identity and sin and salvation. There are no fine points that we can afford to miss, and we certainly cannot afford to miss the broad strokes. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to give you some of the most basic components of Christian teaching. You could call it theology. I want to start at the end of the love chapter. I consider it a great scripture from which to launch a sermon entitled Leadership in an Immoral World, Inescapable Culpability. This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That one line, men listening to me today, especially men, would be important for you to think about as we live on the cusp of the coming of Christ. Big boys is not the solution to the world's problems. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. We know in this society, according to the data, and I'm certainly not against data, I just try to figure out which data is inspired and which isn't based on inspiration. Could someone say amen? According to the data, our young people take longer to grow up today than ever before. And I don't think you'd need to be a sociological scientist to figure that out. You just need to be an employer or a parent. When I celebrated my 31st birthday, I had one, ch one child. No, I had two children. The idea that someone knows themselves in their teenage years is a developing concept. The idea that this man could write this in his middle life is an illustrative observation that he himself understood the journey of self-discovery was one onward and upward with Jesus Christ himself. The idea that I could be known by someone better than I know myself is not a theological fine point. It is the point of an intimate 
relation with Jesus Christ, our creator, our redeemer, and our restorer. When David could write in Psalm 139 that I can't go anywhere without you, God. I can't get up. I can't lay down. I can't go to the far side or the dark side. I can't think a thought without you knowing it before it's on my tongue. These are not theological fine points. They are some of the most practical, hopeful, encouraging, and sometimes condemning dynamics of our life. And the idea that we would somehow affirm identities that are in the developmental stages and wandering through the desert of dysfunction and confusion in regards to morality is absolutely unbelievable to me. Obviously, there are elemental things that, that some have not really thought about. I think especially of this famous line that I grabbed onto as a young preacher as I heard Pastor Mark Finley share it. It went like this. It says, expression deepens what? Impression. Every time you act out an ugly, impatient word, it's like fertilizing the weed in your heart to be impatient and angry and irritable. And every time you deny it in the strength of the Holy Spirit, it's like withholding water and food from it. Every time you do something loving and kind, every time you stoop to be humble and thoughtful and careful and considerate, it is as if the very person is in a journey of God-likeness. We call it sanctification. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 5, that, that first big minor prophet, Hosea. Find the book of Daniel and go just a little bit farther. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Reading from the New American Standard. We'll begin with verse 3. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me pretty powerful statement. I know my people. For now, O Ephraim, you've played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Now, I want you to catch this verbiage in verse 4 because it is a powerful spiritual law. Their deeds... It doesn't say their thoughts. I know that sin begins in the mind and works its way out to the thoughts, but I know the thoughts acted out from evil deeds shapes the character and makes the person. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is in them, and they do not know the Lord. Friends, let us not forget that expression deepens impression, and doing is becoming. That's why every time I deny an ungodly lust, I am finding victory through the living Jesus on the inside, and it's transforming the outside. And sometimes I start with the choice not to act before the motivation to act is extinguished. But God slowly 
powerfully gives us the victory and sometimes decidedly and in the moment. But whichever way the journey with him is, his presence, his power, his purifying love is still very much alive. I want everybody in this generation to know something. That in this postmodern generation from which we are not immune, the frog has been warmed into that lukewarm kettle. This generation values method over message. This generation values technique over truth. Just try to correct your, your children. And if they're all born legal-like, like mine were, they're quick to tell you what your faults are and totally deflect from what the main problem is and that you're a generation in front of them and have poured out your life in love to them. Yes, they're becoming their own child, their own adult, their own person. But I want you to know something because the first group this morning that I want to address in this inescapable culpability are the parents. Every parent that neglects their child for more money, more education, or more fun will be held accountable. There is no power strong enough the church and the church school are not efficient enough to overcome a worldly version of parental modern-day supposed Christianity. If there's no church at your home and it's an arcade or a theater or it's an area, a wasteland of neglect and apathy, no church and no church school, no pastor and no teacher can overcome that kind of culpability. It was overcome in my home, but that's because my home was not a professing home. I didn't have the mixed messages of someone saying, do as I do. No, I had the clear message of don't do as I do, do as I say. If I wouldn't have met Jesus Christ in my early teenage years, I wouldn't have married my wife. I wouldn't have been selling, celebrating the birthday of Nathan, which means gift of God yesterday. I wouldn't be standing here before you this afternoon. It is the damning effect of a home that is very Laodicean, that is dragging down our ability to actually love like we should love and confront like we should confront and encourage like we should encourage. We're stuck because of leadership issues. And I need to be careful. I've done this parenting thing. I'm still doing it four times over. And I'm in that really dangerous wasteland where I look back at everything I've done with the maturity of a 57-year-old man and I can see mistake after mistake. But the one mistake I did not make was failing to do the best I could do to love my kids. And they won't be able to do any better on that regard. Because I put off my postgraduate studies, and so did my wife. And I refused opportunities to go to bigger churches because of them. And I chose what kind of car I drove and what kind of vacations we took 
because of them. My wife is priority number one. They're priority number two. And that's the best thing I could have done for them too. I'm not here this morning to step on any parents. I'm here to challenge everybody who still has influence over somebody that's coming behind them because you are the closest friend they have. And the wounds of the Scripture, it's as if some people have never read this, that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The weak and the pliant errands are among us. They're in some homes. They're in some schools. They're in some administrative positions. They're in some churches. But it doesn't work. Look at his two oldest children and what became of them. There is no such thing as tough love unless tender love precedes it. Please, parents, don't be too busy and too stressed. Don't be too distracted and too ambitious. Where are your children? Jesus isn't lowering the standard for our kids. And he's not lowering the standard for us. We are called to make sure we don't by commission or omission place a millstone around their neck, let alone ours. Our children should not be being babysat by virtual experiences on real devices. I can remember as a student with Andrews University going down to the Smoky Mountains two different years and you know, we'd always make the same loop. We'd come out of Cades Cove, we'd go up onto the Appalachian Trail, and we'd come down off the trail, and we'd head back into Cades Cove, and we always had to cross Abrams Creek. The problem with crossing Abrams Creek is that it's a mountainous river. And depending on how much rain was in the Smoky Mountains, which in the month of March was a decent amount, the river flowed swiftly. I want to tell you, Crossing a swift-flowing river with something that weighs a lot on your back, it's nice if you can hang on to somebody while you're crossing. And if you lose your footing, you're not going down and drenching everything on your back. We want this kind of linkage. Spouses, the cowardice to confront dysfunction in a home, for fear that your reputation might be tarnished and to institutionalize that dysfunction, I didn't say to run to the divorce lawyer. You may have to move out of the bedroom before you move out of the house, and you may have to move out of the house before you move out of the marriage. But there is a God in heaven who can nerve you so that the cycle of dysfunction can be broken. Parents and teachers, what's hanging on the walls in your children's room? Boy, that sounds so old school. <laughs> that picture of Abraham Lincoln that I believe hung on my wall? Doesn't it seem like an eon ago? Maybe the more pertinent question is, what's viewing on the little three-by-five screen as they sit with their back against the wall so they can see you walk into the room and flick the thumb and be somewhere supposedly sanctified. Please, don't forget this one law. God's not changing it. I plucked this off the wall of the Bible 
room at Wisconsin Academy two weeks ago while I was there. This is what it says, with permission. It is a law. It is a what, friends? Of both the intellectual and spiritual nature that by beholding, we become what? The mind gradually adapts itself to the subject upon which it is allowed to dwell. Is it any wonder that the sexual revolution of the 60s has morphed into the sexual addiction of the 21st century? Is it any wonder knowing that only 3% of our kids have not been exposed to pornography? That we now have all kinds of dysfunction? Listen, friends, whether you're addicted to pornography or some other form of passion, the Savior you love has the power to set you free if you will accept an identity and a lifestyle that has power to transform. Unsupervised children. And by the way, I put some statistics up at a recent business meeting. It was a chart that was going down rather precipitously. I want to tell you that not only are those statistics correct that we are going out of business unless something changes, that the birth rate from 1974 on to the 50th year after that, or 40th year after that, which is about where we're at, has remained relatively stable. The precipitous drop in birth rates for children came in the 60s and the 50s. And I want to go a little bit farther than that. Lest you think we're not living in a crisis, I said nothing about the fact that probably two out of the three remaining boarding academies in this union are subsisting on voucher money from the governments, and probably the next two biggest elementary schools are too. And if that voucher money was ever pulled, we would see an implosion the likes of which we've never seen in Christian education. If ever there was a day for parents and teachers and church members to bond together in prayer for the salvation of our kids, it's today. They are absorbing this culture's message because they are involved in the social media like no generation ever before us. And all the advertisements and all the messaging and all the worthless things that are out there to see, they have an effect because it's a law. The mind and the spirit are molded by the matter they behold. Pastors, did you listen to the Scripture reading? Are you afraid of that person that has a lot of money? Are you afraid for your reputation and your career? You could never be a parent and be afraid and be a good one, and you could never be a pastor and be afraid. The wolves are out there. The wolves are circling the flock. The wolves are devouring the flock. And if you run away, at least you can identify yourself as a hireling. If you can't stand in the pulpit and in the love of Jesus, remember, folks, this generation loves technique over truth. Your pastor may blurt the words out, 
in strain, in stress, in fear, and in fretting. He may not have said it exactly the way he should have, or the elder, or the parent. But if we could be mature enough to get beyond a feelings experience and say, is there any substance to what was said? Does the truth matter? Is there a real issue beyond the superficialities of the skin of method? And I'll tell you, my mother drilled into me as a kid over and over again, Ronnie, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. So I get it. Don't try to take something I've said here today and make it say something I'm not. But if it comes down to cowardice, or bumbling through the message. Choose the bumbling. If I never had to deal with another addict of this or another addict of that, that would be great. And if the curve could go the other way because of the uplifted Jesus and love enough to run into the fray like David did, and he said, Mr. Bear, you're not having one of my sheep tonight. Mr. Wolf, this is not your supper. I am here to protect the sheep. The problem is some of the sheep kick and bite and some of them headbutt. You don't think sheep do that. At Broadview Academy, the farm manager had a ram. And I want to tell you, it was bigger than most any dog. And it had the power to knock down adult men. And people sometimes didn't want to get out of their cars because of that ram. He probably made some watchdogs look like kitty cats. Pastoring with people who are not committed to the Word, with people who are not living it in their homes, with immature mamas and papas, and doting grandmas and grandpas who don't understand what real love looks like and how it's defined is a difficult thing to do. But it's not changing pastors unless somebody has the kindness, the courage, and the love to say, do, and be. And by the way, this is not the age of the professional pastor where you turn your cell phone off so you can't be bothered and you are advancing in your career with your extra learning, but you're letting the sheep be preyed on by a predatory generation. I didn't say there's no room for a few boundaries. I've done this for 30 years. And how many meals have been interrupted? And how many va family vacations have been delayed? My children are quite functional, plenty of room to grow. But I'm here to tell you, a deeply rooted love with Jesus, a strong love in a married relationship has given myself and my wife overflowing strength and energy to care for people. And if you care for the people, pastors, eventually they will figure it out and come back to you in time of need. Hang on and pray the prayer. Contend with those who contend with me and save my children. Administrators. Do you understand administrators? Yours is not anything but an administration of the Word? Anything less? Hireling. Wisdom, yes. Timing, yes. But this morning, I want to assure you, we will all be without excuse when we practice the immorality of cowardness, unfaithfulness to God, and neglect. 
Do you remember that Jesus was almost thrown off a cliff? They didn't invite him to potluck. They invited him to a rapid descent in his own home church. Do you remember that he almost experienced stoning after he said the self-evident truth that before Abraham was in John chapter 8, I am? Do you remember he was slandered for taking Zacchaeus' invitation to share food? Do you remember he was abandoned by the masses for saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Do you remember that Jesus was betrayed because, of a conf- because he confronted a thieving, dark-hearted disciple? Do you remember he was struck on the face for speaking the truth to the high priest or that he was denied justice by a spineless Roman governor who loved applause? Do you remember he was spat upon, mocked and derided while hanging naked on a cross? We have incrementally abandoned the inspired definition of love in the inspired word of God and we've embraced false science and gotten dysfunction as a result. I want to remind you what the Bible says. To those who believed on him, he gave them the power to become what? The sons and daughters of God. That mystery is as powerful today as when visiting with Nicodemus. And he said, Nicodemus, you don't get this. You should understand it, but you don't get this. The wind blows where it will, and it has an effect. That power is still as available today as when Jesus ran into a man and his friend. One of them was named Legion. You can be certain by inference out of the desire of ages, they were worse than practicing homosexuals of today, for they practiced the vilest form of lust. And yet Jesus not only set him free and healed him, he said, the way to stay free is go talk about me. And he did it. And when Jesus came back, others were drawn and won. Too much to say, too little time to say it. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Three important things you cannot leave this message without hearing. Genesis chapter 3. Inescapable culpability. Because there's a Holy Spirit, no one will have an excuse. Because he warns the world of, convicts the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness, no one is getting out without personal responsibility. Genesis 3.15, if you accept the idea of modern sociological and psychological science that a person must forever identify with a sexual orientation, you are denying three basic things from the third chapter of Genesis. Here they are. Verse 15 has two of them. Number one, you're denying the first promise. And I will put what? I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's not talking about Adam and Eve. That's talking about the seed of Adam and Eve and the serpent. If God cannot keep his first promise, what makes us think he can keep any of the rest? The second thing you're denying is the second half of the verse. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The second promise is that Jesus would go into the pit with the snakes and would be bit. But before he got out of the pit, he would step on the head 
That moment came 2,000 years ago on Calvary when he stretched his arms out on a cross and he suffered. He could have died in Gethsemane, but no, it's not enough. We needed to see the real Satan for who he is. And so Jesus dies on a cross and calls out victoriously, it's done, it's finished. And the power of that cross followed by the power of the resurrection is what Paul uses in his epistles to tell us what kind of power is available to the person who desires to be transformed. Yes, you are denying the power of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection when you take your identity from some modern statistical analysis. And the third thing you're denying Turn here. We're not going to sing the closing hymn. We're going to go here instead. Revelation 14. Revelation 14. There's one more thing that's being denied. And it might be the most important thing to know about. All from Genesis 3. Three things from Genesis 3. Chapter 14 of Revelation. And I saw another angel, verse 6, flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel, except that's a bad translation. It should say eternal gospel. The word is eternal, which means the gospel goes back before the fall of sin, and it goes long after the sin problem, because the gospel is God himself. That's what Jesus said. This is eternal life, to know the one who sent me and to know me. Now, go back to Genesis 3. I want to know where the gospel is. Oh, you say it's right there. Jesus stepping in to step on the head. I say, oh, no, it's far before then. Genesis chapter 3. Go back. We're about done. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has indeed God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. What a master psychologist. The direct quote is, you shall not eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. Friends, what would the world be like today if they would have listened? The third problem with identifying yourself in any context other than the love of God is this. You must remake the definition of love to exclude truth, to exclude the law, to exclude the things that actually protect love. That warning was gospel. That warning was love. To not touch that tree would have been a gift to you and to me. And if you must make your identity out in the sense of modern science, you must redefine the what love is and the law's got to go. The truth of the matter is the law protects and defines in some measure at least the outer limits of what love is, especially when the inner sanctity and sanctuary has been surrendered. I want to remind you this morning, friends, he is able to save to the uttermost, some say the guttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. And lastly, for this message this morning, thereby 
are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might become partakers of the divine what? Nature. I'm here to tell you this morning, it is not the finer points of theology that create the compromised launching pad for the message of this book. There are many things in this book that you could take good advantage of. Courtesy, kindness, thoughtfulness. All of these things in this book are good. But the idea that we accept an identity with a besetting sin, a soul-destroying identity in anything except Jesus Christ is not a finer point of theology. I want to say today, you matter, you're loved. Those things are unconditional. But if you'd like to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus and belong in a different relationship instead of just the preconditional love of God, it is the surrender of the entire self, parent. It is the surrender of the entire self, teacher. It is the surrender of the entire self, pastor. It is the surrender of the entire self, administrator. It is the surrender of the entire self. So you may not be able to sit home and watch your favorite sitcom while the church is praying on Wednesday night. Oh, pastor, why couldn't you have ended the sermon sooner? It's only principled Christianity that can talk. If you don't want to hear the Holy Spirit speaking about, if you want to hear him speaking about the things you're desperate to know about, you're going to have to learn to listen to him when he steps on your toes and he prompts you to the inconveniences. The church is powerless, it appears. Go back to last week's sermons to overcome the skepticism of the world. It's not okay with Jesus. It shouldn't be okay with you. I'm here to tell you this morning, you're loved. No matter what you've done or where you've been, you matter. No matter what you've done or where you've been, and as one preacher said this week, the price has already been paid for you to belong now and in eternity. But if you want to go past the agape love of God and let him change you and give you everything he's already paid for, and you must surrender every facet and let Jesus lead you a step at a time, a day at a time, all the way to the new life, the new kingdom, the restoration he has in mind. May God give us the desire and may we take the resurrection power, the enmity promise, and the gospel definition of love, which does include limits and law. And may we go to heaven, inside the heaven of the presence of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, if ever we needed to know your character, emulate your methods, have your divine love, which breeds courage, it is today. Bless every hurting heart, every heavy heart, Lord. Forgive us when we've had superficial relationships with you and superficial relationships with each other and superficial relationships with the Word and our own kids and our church members. May we trade it in on the inconvenient intimacy which is so wonderfully better and so absolutely worth it. Lord, 
May we be loving and lovable Christians who know how to stand up in a world that calls right wrong and wrong right. And when they walk away from us, Lord, may they be wrestling with what we said because they know we really do love Jesus and we really do love them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.